For our scripture reading, we turn to Psalm 26. Consider this morning, Lord's Day 30, which is on for whom the Lord's Supper is instituted. And in this psalm, we speak of separating from those that walk in ways of wickedness. And we read, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. We read Psalm 26. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord. Therefore, I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, Neither will I go in with dissemblers. I've hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency. So will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity. Redeem me, and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth, in an even place. In the congregations will I bless the Lord. So far we read from the infallibly inspired scriptures this morning. And this passage in all of scripture are the basis for the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 30. Take note as we read this, not only of the difference between the Popish Mass and the Lord's Supper, but also taking note of the very comforting truth that the Lord's Supper testifies. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross. And that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches The living and the dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests, 
First, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them. So that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. And yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ. And that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death. And who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened. And their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No. For by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, after two Lord's Days on the Lord's Supper, the Heidelberg Catechism considers for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? Question and answer 80 was added later from the original edition. Originally, then the way it was written was after two Lord's Days on the Lord's Supper, then the question is for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? And it brings out also the calling of the church. Who are to be admitted to the Lord's Supper? Are they to admit to the Supper those who, by confession and life, declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? And the answer is no. For by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. And then that leads to the subject of the, the keys of the kingdom. And that is what is treated what is treated next. Also, when talking about the discipline of the impenitent, then soon there's a discussion of, well, what are good works? Why must we do good works, and what are they? And then we go through the Ten Commandments, and then we go through the prayer, the subject of prayer, the chief part of thankfulness. There's a great contrast between the Lord's Supper and the Mass. And when we take note of what is said here, that in addition to talking about the subject of for whom the Lord's Supper is, is instituted, there is this article on the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Mass. And since we've already had two Lord's Days on the Lord's Supper, much has already been said about that. But here there's set forth, and importantly so, the great distinction between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass serving to bring out that when one departs from the word of God and goes in a wrong direction, that they do not want what God 
the word of truth. And they reject it, and they go the wrong way. How, as time goes on, it gets worse and worse to the point where the Romish church, what they teach is actually an accursed idolatry. We say that's accurate. But that's really what it is. It really is a denial of Christ's one sacrifice and an accursed idolatry. It serves to bring out the importance of not going the wrong way. Starting to go against what God says and start going on a road where one gets more, worse and worse over time. But also, as I pointed out, when we consider an heir, and a teaching that is false, it is good for us to consider what is the opposite of that error and how comforting the message that the Lord's Supper testifies is in our sorrows, in the trials that we go through. What a comfort it is to know we have the full pardon of all sin. By his only, the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That we're righteous before God. We are an heir of everlasting life. That Christ has reconciled us to God. He has obtained for us the quickening spirit. We have communion. The Lord's Supper, communion. We have communion with the living God. Forever. Everlasting fellowship, covenant, communion with God. Yet Christ, who's in heaven, is our head. Our head is in heaven. He'll take us up to be with Him. We're members of His body. We're inseparably connected to Him. What a comfort that is. As we go through this life, this valley of tears, we have comfort. We have hope. And we consider this Lord's Day considering that very comforting truth that we confess by the grace of God. We look at this Lord's Day from the point of view of what the Lord's Supper testifies. We're going to first of all consider, or for whom the Lord's Supper is instituted rather. First we're going to consider what the Lord's Supper testifies as it is brought out here in this question and answer. Then we're going to consider who is to be admitted, the subject of admission to the Lord's Supper, as that is brought out in question and answer 81 and 82. And then lastly, we consider the subject of praising our God. That's brought up in the Lord's Supper form. We go through the Lord's Supper form, the first the self-examination part of the form, then going on into the form, and at the end of the form we we Praise God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And in this psalm too, we say that we will praise the Lord. We delight to exalt his name. That we will, I will publish with the, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell all thy wondrous works. Verse 7. That we who are fed and nourished in our souls who are thankful for our salvation, delight to praise the holy name of our God. So we consider this Lord's Day under the theme, the Lord's Supper for whom? We consider, first of all, what the 
Lord's Supper testifies. Secondly, the admission, and thirdly, the, the praise. First, about what the supper testifies. As was already mentioned, it was not in the original edition. Question and answer 80. Then it was added in two stages. The first part that was added was about the mass denying the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ. So when it was originally added, it was shorter. And it says, the Lord's Supper testifies that we have a full pardon of our sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and so on. The mass test teaches that the living and the dead have not the pardon of sin through the sufferings of Christ, and so on. And then, so that the mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ. That's the way it was in the second edition. That there were the parts that had to do with what the Lord's Supper teaches, what the Mass teaches, and then a summary statement at the end concerning the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ. Then in the third edition, there were added sections about the fact that it's an accursed idolatry. It was added that the Lord's Supper also testifies that where we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is not on earth but in heaven at the right hand of God and will, be, and will there be worshipped by us. That's what the Lord's Supper testifies. In contrast, the Mass teaches that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them. And then the statement that it's an accursed idolatry at the end. That was added at the, at the end. There are those, like the CRC, that have said that the negative statements don't agree with the current teachings of the Romish church. We disagree with that. And we still teach, rightly so, what is taught here in question and answer 80. It serves to bring out the seriousness of the air of the popish of the Popish Mass. By the Popish Masses meant the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Mass. Sinful man rejects what God says. As the church goes the wrong way, they're leading people to rely on them rather than on Christ. You desire to be forgiven? Well, then the priest must offer Christ for you all the time church that departs from the truth, they want to determine what we're to believe. They're going to determine what we're to do. They're going to determine what we're not supposed to do. Trying to get us to listen to them rather than listening to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God guides his people to understand the truth. Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. That he was speaking the word of truth, and there were those that were questioning whether he was speaking the word of truth. And Jesus said that. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. God guides his people to know the truth. To hear, we hear the voice of of the Good Shepherd, 
we're constantly to go to the Word, pray, go to the Word to guide us as we live in these last days where there are many false teachings. So concerning what the Lord's Supper testifies, we're going to look at just those briefly, those two ideas concerning Christ's one sacrifice and then concerning the worship of Christ. First, concerning the one sacrifice of Christ. The Mass really denies the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, they say the living don't have the pardon of sins unless Christ is daily offered for them by the priests. Unless that happens, they don't they have not the pardon of sins. In fact, they say that not only concerning the living, but also the dead. The living and the dead have not the pardons of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered by the priests. And that's a denial of Christ's one sacrifice. One place we see the truth concerning the matter is found in the book of Hebrews, such as in Hebrews 7, verse 27, that says, compare, looking at the sacrifice of Christ and then considering in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, there was this ongoing sacrificing. In contrast to that, it says concerning Jesus, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, those priests had to offer first for their own sins, and then for the people's, for this he, that is Christ, did once, once, when he offered up himself. The sinless one who laid down his life for you and for me. Repetition would mean there was no real atonement. Christ really did reconcile us to God. We receive the blessings of salvation on the basis of what Christ has done. We have the full pardon of all sin. The Lord's Supper testifies. We break the bread as we drink from the cup of wine, as we drink the cup that we read that in the, the Heidelberg Catechism rightly says that that Lord's Supper is testifying to us that we have a full pardon of all sin, of all sin, by Christ's one sacrifice. Hebrews 9 says, verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Once, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. For us. For his elect people. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. By one offering. We've been engrafted into Christ. And we receive all his benefits by a true faith. And the Spirit works in us faith and strengthens, confirms the faith by the administration of the sacraments. And we are comforted by the truth 
that the Lord's Supper testifies concerning the forgiveness of sins. In the trials we go through, we often think of our sinfulness. I'm such a sinner. In our weaknesses, in our trials and afflictions, that often directs us to think again about our sinfulness. And what a comfort it is, the Lord's Supper's testimony. We're washed, we're cleansed, we're righteous in Christ. We have a full pardon of all sin by Christ's one sacrifice. Secondly, concerning the worshiping of Christ, the Lord's Supper testifies something very different than the Mass. The Mass says, Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them. The Romish church taught at the Council of Trent, we are to render in veneration the worship of Latria, a certain type of worship they're claiming, the worship of Latria, we'll talk about that. We're to render in veneration the worship of Latria which is due to the true God, to this most holy sacrament. They render worship to the sacrament. That was the Council of Trent. Now when they say the worship of Latria, the Greek word, Latreia, means the service worship of God. The verb, the verb that's connected with that noun, is used when Jesus said these words, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Him only shalt thou serve. And there that word is used. Yet they say, they were to render this veneration, the worship of Latria, to the whole, most holy sacrament. He's bodily under the form of bread and wine and it is to be worshipped in them. We say that's, that's wrong. That's an accursed idolatry. And in contrast, we say the Lord's Supper testifies that Christ, according to his human nature, is not on earth, but in heaven and will there be worshipped by us. That's what the Lord's Supper testifies. Again, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 7, verse 26 says, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He's exalted us. He sits at the right hand of God. There is to be worshipped by us. In the Lord's Supper, we're told that we show forth the Lord's death till he come, till he come, bringing out there's a sense in which he's not here. By his spirit, he's, of course, with us always, but there is a sense in which he is not here. His human nature is finite, and the divine nature is beyond the limits of the human nature. We do this 
in remember, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He's in heaven, there to be worshipped by us. And what a comfort it is to know our head is in heaven. We have life in Christ that is everlasting. Our fathers used to use a phrase that said, the life we have is a life on the other side of death. It's an interesting phrase. You think you think of someone having this life and then they die. And then after this life, there's a life on the other side of death. Christ died, was raised and exalted, and he dwells in us by his spirit. And he said, because I live, ye shall live also. Ye shall live also. We are inseparably joined to him. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Never die. Though our bodily life comes to an end. Although there will be some that are still alive when Christ returns. But for the others, our bodily life comes to an end. And the others will in a moment be changed. Yet we know we have a life. That we have a life, a twofold life. We have a bodily life that comes to an end. And then we also have a life that is ongoing, that never ends. And indeed, our bodies themselves will one day be raised. What a comfort. What a comfort we have. And what a comfort it is, the truth that the Lord's Supper testifies. Okay, now we turn to the subject of the admission to the Lord's Supper that testifies this comforting truth. It's not for hypocrites and for those who don't sincerely repent. It's not for those who are dissemblers, as, the, as it says in Psalm 26, verse 4, I have not sat with vain persons, neither where I go in, with dissemblers, a dissembler, the word there has the idea of someone who's hiding under some, hiding. That's the, and the, the English word dissemble has that idea. Hiding under a false appearance. So somebody puts on an outward show that is false. So that they try to appear to others that they're, that they are walking in obedience, they're walking with God. But really, what they are hiding is that they are continuing impenitently to walk in sin. They say, I will not go in with dissemblers. I will not join with them. It's not for dissemblers. It's not for those that are idolaters. It's not for contentious persons. You know, if we could go down the list of, in the Lord's Supper form, the, when we read the first part, and we warn that those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord, that those who are walking in sins, if they partake, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And then we go through a number of sins and point them out, including contentious persons, those given to raise discord, sects and mutiny in church or state. 
go through the list of the different sins. And the idea is that somebody who's impenitently walking in sin, not turning from their sin, the grievousness, seriousness of somebody that knowingly is continuing on in their sin and that they come to the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's been found out that somebody's been walking in a sin for a long time and during all that time they kept gathering for worship, even coming to the Lord's Supper. The seriousness of such a sin. And this Lord's Day speaks of that. Hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. The church's duty to exclude such persons. Of course, once it becomes manifest that this or that person is walking in sin, they're to exclude them. When the question is asked, are they to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves? So they're declaring themselves unbelieving and ungodly. And the answer is no. They are not. There are many places where there is hardly any church discipline. There are many where certain sins are blatantly going on and they're not being disciplined. It wasn't that long ago I worked with a young couple, one individual coming from outside our churches, enjoyed being able to work with the young couple. And I asked the question to the one that was coming from outside the church that you go to, that you were, have been going to, would they be, what would they say about homosexual sins? Well, they'd, they'd, they'd be against it, was the response. But then when I asked the follow-up question, if, somebody, if it was very clear that somebody was walking in that sin, would there be any discipline? And without, like, without any hesitation, no, no, there wouldn't be any discipline. That's going on. Even in places where they would say, of course, there are those places where there are those that say they're Christian and they'll say, there's, there's nothing wrong with this. In fact, it's something wrong with the ones that are saying it's sinful. But even in places where people would, that are there would say, oh no, I know the scriptures say that's sinful, that there's no discipline. Or there's people that rarely show up to church. Occasionally they show up when they, when they want to. And yet there's no discipline. Anybody that says they're a Christian is allowed to partake. There is to be church discipline. That is one of the marks of a true church. And this brings out the seriousness. Are they to be admitted who are showing themselves by their confession and, and walk to be unbelieving and ungodly? No. For by this the covenant of God would be profaned. His wrath would be kindled against the whole congregation. That's not a small matter. That's accurate. And if you're talking to somebody in a church that says they hold to the Heidelberg Catechism, say, well, do you believe this is true? What it says here? It brings out the seriousness of not having church discipline as we ought. It's the duty of the Christian church 
according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show, till they show amendment of life. When there's repentance, when they turn to God in sorrow and confess their sin, we bring out, there's forgiveness. Even those that have fallen into those kind of sins, there, there is forgiveness. For those that come to God in sorrow and confess that they, went, that they grievously sinned against God, then they are comforted, you're washed, you're cleansed, they're welcomed into the fellowship, and they show real amendment of life. Very important it is. The subject of church discipline. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. We read in Roman in Revelation eighteen, verse four. Be ye not partakers of her sins. Must turn from sin to God. Turning from sin to God, the merciful, the gracious God who forgives sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our calling is that. We're to judge ourselves. We read of that in 1 Corinthians 11. Now we're talking about the subject of self-examination so that we can rightly say, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. We need to be able to say the things that are said here. Examine me, O Lord, verse 2. Prove me, try my reins in my heart. Verse 4, I have not sat with vain persons, I'm not going to walk with the wicked. I've hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. We live in the midst of this world. But we're to, there's a certain separation of us. We're not to walk with the people who are walking in the ways of sin. And that includes from a digital point of view. But today, there are great dangers. We see what's going on in the world, and we like to use, and the danger of using digital means to be able to see and really enjoying the wickedness of what's going on in the world. We're to turn away from that sin. But we don't want to be with them in that way either. We want to turn away, turn our eyes away from such things. We say because God's statutes are despised with overwhelming grief, we, we weep. We sing that. And we're to sing that from the heart. And by the grace of God, God works in us that we do have a sorrow for our sin. We don't want to be with those of, that walk in the ways of sin.
Verse 9, gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men. There are those that are angry. There are those that are sinfully angry and who stir up strife. We're to walk in separation from such. We're to come as those who have laid aside unfeignedly all envy, sinful anger, desire for revenge. The three parts of self-examination. You recall that there are three parts. They kind of correspond to the three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. The, the sin, the deliverance, and the gratitude. The three parts of self-examination is first that we consider our sins. It's like the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism. How great our sins and miseries are. The second part of self-examination is that we examine our heart whether we believe God's faithful promise that, our, that we receive the blessings of salvation only for the sake of the sacrifice, suffering sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That we believe that. That that's what we confess. We say that we know that's true. Whether we believe this faithful of God that all our sins are forgiven only for the sake of the passion, that's the suffering, and death of Jesus Christ. Only. Notice that word only. All our sins are forgiven only for the sake of his suffering and death. And that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as given us as our own. And so on. We're to examine our heart whether we believe that. Now that, that's, that has to do with the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism concerning deliverance. When we talk about our deliverance, we go through what Christ has done for us, what he does by his spirit in us. But here we're looking at what he has, that the blessings we receive is solely because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. Do we believe that? Do we believe we're righteous in him? It's not because we fulfilled some condition. And we're to come as those who believe that faithful promise of God. Thirdly, we're to come, we're to examine our conscience. Whether we're resolved. This is an important point. Are we resolved? Are we determined that we're going to show true thankfulness to God in all our life? The language that's used is that we examine our conscience whether we are purposing, purposing to show true thankfulness to God in our whole life. That's gratitude. Are we purposing going forward? We're not like one person that comes and says, oh, I'm such a sinner and I believe that Christ has, that I'm not saved on the basis of any condition that I've fulfilled, that I, I can look at the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I believe that faithful promise of God. They make a statement like that, but then you say, are you resolved to show true thankfulness to God in your whole life? Or is your thought, Christ did it all, and then that means I can just go continue on in my sin. Somebody who's truly thankful for their salvation says they're purposing to show true thankfulness to God in their whole life. They want to. 
They know it's going to be a battle. They know it's going to be a struggle. But they want to show true thankfulness to God in all of their life. Thy faithfulness, thy testimonies, Lord, in faithfulness excel. And holy must thy servants be who in thy temple dwell. Psalter 252. We want our lives to be more holy. We don't have perfect faith. The Lord's Supper is for those that say, I don't serve God with the zeal that I ought. I don't. I don't have perfect faith. I don't. I want my life to be more holy. I want my faith to be strengthened. I'm sorry for my sins. For those people. The Lord's Supper is instituted for you. For you. That you might be comforted. In the different trials that you go through. That you might have comfort. All those that are thus disposed. The Lord's Supper form says. Will be received. No sin that remains against our will, against our will in us, can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. Christ nourishes our souls. With his crucified body and shed blood, He nourishes our souls to everlasting life. Everlasting. For real. If that's really true. And we have no doubt. And if you were to witness and tell somebody that too. You have no doubt. And if the person said, how can you say that? How? How can you say that you have no doubt you'll live forever with God? You think you're some holy, holier than other kind of person? You think you're so holy that you're going to live? Say, that's not because of, that's not based on my obedience. I know I'm a sinner and I know I've got a depraved nature. I believe the faithful promise of God. Christ nourishes my soul to everlasting life. He's told me. God has told me. He assures me. I will live forever with him. What a comfort we have. And those who are nourished want to praise the name of God. We want to. So will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house. We want to be with God's people praising the name of our God. We delight to praise him. We say, let everyone say in his heart thus, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. Bless the Lord.
praise his name. That's what we want to do. We want to praise him. Praise him for his mercy. Like in Psalm 86, we sing, Thou, O Lord, art our God, full of compassion. We sing this as sinners saved by grace. O Thou, O Lord, art our God. Thou, O Lord, art our God, full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. We're resolved to glorify His name. We keep His loving kindness before our eyes. This is quite something in this psalm as He's these psalms where we read of the sufferings of David and we know we're directed to think of the sufferings of Christ and how people spoke against him and how people came against him, worked together against him, falsely accused him, and they came against David. They come against us. Of course, for us, we're sinners. Christ, the sinless one, they came against him. And in the trials we go through, the difficulties we face, what we say here is what we keep before our eyes is the loving kindness of God. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, verse 3, that we keep meditating on God's loving kindness. There's a tendency when people are treating us wrongly that our mind is always on who's treating us wrongly. What they've said about us or what they've done to us or whatever. We have our mind on that. We're to keep our mind on the loving kindness of our God. He's made an everlasting covenant. We, the people of God, saved by grace, delight to praise him together. It's another point to bring out with the Lord's Supper. I think this is going to be important that we start bringing this out more. There are many people who are listening to our sermons, reading our material, who sit by themselves, far from any of our churches, and we're delighted to hear that they appreciate our word, we ask them often, do you know of any others in your area who have like faith or would be willing to receive instruction? We also bring out, as time goes on, if somebody's been in that situation for quite some time, the importance, the importance of us gathering together. That's brought out in the psalm. Gathering together in the, in, with the house of God, my foot standeth in an even place in the congregations, in the congregations, I'll gather with the people of God. Praise the name of our God. Indeed, the Lord's Supper is administered by the church, the church institute, and the people together partake and together praise God. And thank Him for our salvation. We say in the psalm, I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Verse 1. I shall not slide, 
how the psalm begins and it ends, my foot standeth in an even place. In the congregation will I bless the Lord. The Lord upholds us. We're safe. We're secure in Jesus Christ. Out of thankfulness, with joy in our heart, even in the midst of tears, may we praise and exalt the name of our Savior and glorify his holy name. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, and our Father, we thank Thee, O Lord, and praise Thee. We are so thankful for Christ's perfect sacrifice, and to know where He is, and to know He will come back, and to know that we are joined to Him, that we are members of His body, members of the bride of Christ, so thankful for Him that laid down His life for us, the love Thou hast shown us in giving Thine only begotten Son. May we glorify Thee, may we be comforted in our souls, and may we praise Thy holy name, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.